Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen O'Sullivan and I am the host of this show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders and experts in the field of leadership of self and others, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past potential fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. We want you to be you, to be at your best and to show up in the most authentic way. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome everybody. I am so delighted to have you back here and I really hope that you have been enjoying a wonderful summer if you are based in the Northern Hemisphere and hopefully not too much snow if you are based in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I've heard from a few parts of this world like, oh my God, we haven't ever experienced something like that, uh, dealing with a few weather challenges there. So anyway, I hope you are well, healthy and happy and refreshed to join this particular episode today. It's a very special one. And actually, I came across our guest today through recommendation. And I remember one of my previous guests and uh, coaches, and I call her friend as well, Amanda, who uh, said to me, oh, my God, I went to a conference and I'm not really a person for conferences and networking and so on and so forth, but I was actually blown away by a speaker. I said, oh, tell me a little bit more. Well, her name is Helen Philpott, and she was talking about the importance of real human communication at work. And she said a very personal story around that, and it immediately captured my intrigue. I was completely focused and drawn into this conversation. It was brilliant. And when she says to me something was brilliant, then she means brilliant, brilliant. And she said, you've got to connect. I'm like, yes, of course, let's do that. And so we did. And four or five conversations later, here we are talking on this episode. And there are so many topics we actually cover. And um, one of them is strongly focused on Helen's career path so far. She's someone who really takes her career into her own hands, who sees possibilities and opportunities and who goes for it. And that sometimes means I deliberately let go of a successful goal. I move on. That requires us to be aware of ourselves, to see what's happening for us. Do we feel energized, motivated, challenged? Do we feel aligned in terms of our values or do those feel actually compromised on a frequent basis? And how long am I willing to accept that compromise before I move on? A big part of today's conversation will exactly be focused on that. How you can take bold decisions in order to make the changes that are needed to offer you more growth, more opportunity, more fun at work as well. We will, of course, be focusing on communication in a world where communication is so often purely digital, in a world where we are distracted by emails, by notifications, by social media, by our own minds. How can we still be present with people? Now, in my day-to-day -day work, I speak to leaders on a daily basis, and on a daily basis, I hear I really struggle to focus. I don't have the time to have some proper human conversations. I don't have the time to get to know the people around me. 
Now, today you will meet a very senior female leader who does that in her day to day, who makes the time for it. And she explains to us what the benefits are she is experiencing as a result of it. But she also gives us an insight into her personal world and how she became the leader she is today, how her mom actually influenced some of the growth and development, which is wonderful. But you also hear Helen's vulnerability, her self-reflection, how she's being perceived by others. And so often there's this stereotypical view of women in leadership roles uh, feel like they have to be men and they always have to uh, present themselves so strongly with direct communication. And I apply this almost negative, challenging tone to it, but I have myself experienced that in the past. And Helen shares some insights into her experience with that as well and removes some of those stereotypical views and perceptions as well. So it's going to be a very open, a very honest and true conversation. And I can't really wait to share it with you. However, before we move on to the conversation, let me introduce Helen to you a little bit more. She has a hugely successful track record of digital transformation and a unique mix of editorial, tech, and commercial experience. Helen recently returned to News UK as managing editor of The Sun, and she was previously at Salesforce, where she held the position of regional vice president of strategic media accounts. She started her career as a TV reporter on the BBC graduate trainee scheme, culminating in her presenting BBC Look North before leaving in 2006 to work in Cyprus for the MOD. Upon leaving the MOD, she set up her own company delivering digital training to journalists. And in 2010, Helen joined the News of the World as head of video before leaving for the wider News UK stable as director of business change. She has since worked for DMG Media as head of transformation and governance and set up and run an innovation function at High Street Bank, Santander. She has spent the last five years in a commercial sales role at Salesforce. And now she's going to share some more insights about those roles, how those changes uh, between roles happened, challenges she has experienced, and all the possibilities she has created for herself and her teams with us here today. So enjoy the episode. As always, do share your feedback with us. We can't wait to hear from you. And I'm going to pass on to Helen. Speak to you again in a moment. Huge welcome to you. Helen Philpott is here with me today. Good morning to you. Morning. How are you? I'm very well. My watch tells me so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have an incredible watch and app. It says you are in superb wellness today. Oh, superb wellness. It's rare. Um, so I'm really excited about this conversation. But yeah, the data is telling me that, that it's conspired to make this a optimal session. <laughs> well, let's figure out what optimal session means. However, it's a great start into this conversation because I'm always curious how leaders, human beings in general, but in leadership role, it's in leadership roles, it's so important that we look after our well-being and that we are literally awake. So what helps you to get going in the morning, to get energized into the day? What creates that superb wellness? 
So I am a morning person, always have been. Um, and I think that sometimes recognizing that early on can be um, fortuitous, uh, particularly in leadership, because if you know when you're most awake or most performant, you can structure your day around that. I also know that I'm a very active person, so I need to be physical. I often think back to the choices that I made, um, you know, when I was at school around certain careers and people would say to me, you know, you should join the army, Helen, or, you know, you should, you should be in the police, you know, because I, I, I really enjoy, you know, um, very physical activity and play a lot of sport. And so my day starts every day at quarter to six and I go to the gym or I go for a run. And I've done that now for probably the last eight or nine years. Um, and it's now such a habit that if I don't do it, it just feels like I haven't started my day. Like, you know, like sometimes when you forget to put your watch on, it, it feels like that. It feels like I haven't started my day. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a very big believer in habitual living. So what sports did you play? I played netball. I, w I did quite well. Uh, got to county level, had a few England trials. Wow. Um, but I'm also very uh, accident prone. Uh, and, um, and because I'm very competitive, I ended up injuring myself quite a bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, my competitive netball ended quite quickly after a broken ankle and, a, and an Achilles. So now I just play for fun. Yeah. And you potentially play in other ways in your life and still build in some activity and fun, I could imagine. We had so many conversations and literally every time I talk to you, something else that surprises me comes up. I find it brilliant. You're really one of these people who always, you know, bring something up and you're like, what, where did that come from? And I'm pretty sure we can offer some of that to the listeners here today. You mentioned something a few minutes ago where you said, you know, I'm a morning person and I basically structure my day around that. Now you may be able or maybe not to imagine how many leaders tell me this is not possible. Because you are managed by the diary that is managed by other people. So people put meetings in and you just have to follow, which I personally tend to disagree to. What's your view? How do you manage to really remain flexible? Um, I, so there are days when I, I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible because, you know, there are meetings I can't not go to and they might be at seven o'clock at night um, because I've been working for an American organization. But then what I'll do is I'll make sure that there's time before that for me to go out and do something else. So, you know, I'm a big believer in going for a walk, get outside, change the scenery, get up, go speak to somebody new. If you are going to be in a situation which is not optimal for you because it's in the evening. The other thing I do, I think, is that I give people in my teams the autonomy to be able to work the hours that, 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 that they want within reason. And, and therein lies, you know, um, the, the, the main thing for me, which is, you know, autonomy to be able to work around you is, is a really important thing for me. So in any environment where I feel that I'm being infanticized in some way, I really strongly react um, because I think that as humans, we can do our best work um, if we're allowed to thrive in a way that's optimal for us. I agree with you. And before we delve a little bit deeper into how you lead, how you take other people with you and give them an opportunity really to, to thrive, 
tell us a little bit about your career story, where you are now and what got you to where you are. My goodness. I've just left um, one of the biggest software companies in the world where I've had a fantastic um, ride over the last five years, where I was responsible for the media sector, um, providing uh, tooling for the media sector. Before that, I have done many, many things. Where would you like me to start? <laughs> Way back where? Well, 16? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say 16, but where you said perhaps at, where you were in a role that had a huge impact on you and kind of put down the path for your upcoming career. I, I guess probably I should go back that far. When I left school at 16, it was frowned upon. Everybody else was doing A-levels. They were going off, you know, there was a, you know, a path. And I've never wanted to tread the well-trodden path. So if someone said it was black, I would say it was white. I was incorrigible, belligerent, antagonistic, questioning, difficult. And I think a lot of that came from frustration. I was a carer to my mother for a, uh, as a child. And, you know, that, you know, questioning mind is ever present. And it, it's still very much, you know, something that drives me today. And so the fact that I was told that I should go to go and do A-levels was, was basically, you know, I, I did the opposite. And I worked in a music shop selling sheet music. And uh, I've always really enjoyed and had a passion for music. And I wanted to be surrounded by sound. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I soon realized that this was not going to be my, my calling in life uh, and that I needed more qualifications in order to earn more money. And money is, a, is something else that I've sort of struggled with in terms of a relationship. And again, I think this comes back to um, the, the feminine, which is, you know, women are told that they shouldn't, you know, uh, articulate um, a love of money or you know that money is some somehow kind of crass and and, and is, is not something that you should talk about and so I've, I've struggled with that because actually i am really quite driven by money and what money can provide and what money can bring um, and that feels like a dirty conversation but i'm all right with it now and and so after that i went on to do my a levels at college uh, and even then i was still unsure of what it was i wanted to do and so I'd always have lots and lots of part-time jobs. Um, I remember, you know, working uh, for Texaco, the oil company, uh, and every day I would data entry all of the different regions for different petrol stations. And, you know, and you, you're talking to different people, uh, you know, across the country in different petrol stations. You know, and I think that that, you know, that connection with people and that, you know, that the ability to be able to strike up a conversation and build a rapport with someone is something that I've developed over my career and it's something that i think is overlooked in the toolbox of leadership which is the ability to communicate and articulate in an intelligent engaging and sometimes exciting and, in, and, and insightful and funny way and so i i ended up at university uh, english is my passion i'm a i'm a big reader and um had a great time. I was a mature student at 21 <laughs> and um, ended up getting involved in student radio. Again, something where I could talk. Uh, Loving it. 
I know the reports at school will always, oh, Helen would do so much better if she just stopped talking. I mean, <laughs> ironic is that given that, you know, my first job out of university would be as a BBC graduate trainee in a radio station. Um, and I, and, you know, and I felt like sticking two fingers up to my career um, coach at school because again, you're told so many things don't do this, don't do that, you know, stop talking, be quiet, you know, look nice, all these things that as a child of the 70s and 80s, you know, as a girl, you know, I was just reacting against constantly. You know, if everyone had long hair, I would have short hair. So yeah, ended up at the BBC. And I had never been further than London at the time and um, was sent up to the regions. So ended up in, in Yorkshire. And I had a wonderful time the BBC director general at the time of my joining was Greg Dyke, um, who wanted to change the dynamic of the BBC. He had a strapline which was make it happen. And it was all around providing innovation and new sources of, of uh, new, new access for lots of different people that hadn't already been served by the BBC, which again was pretty kind of Southeast centric at the time. And one of the initiatives that I got involved with was to build a new digital only broadcast center in Hull in the northeast of England. Up until that point, all BBC um, centers were linear, started editing with razor blades and tape. And this was to be fully digital. So digital processes, digital tools, new kit, and, and a new building. And, and that was when? That was in 2000. Yeah, early 2000, mm -hmm. the millennium. So, so truly making it happen. Really making it happen and being at the, you know, the, kind of vanguard of, of digital change. Yeah. Which was hugely exciting. And I was on a, you know, I was seconded onto a team um, where we were learning how to shoot and edit our own material. You know, again, which, you know, gives you that autonomy to be able to create something yourself. You don't need an editor or a camera person to be able to kind of help you in that endeavor, which I found, you know, really liberating. And I ended up becoming, long story short, the uh, TV news presenter for uh, Look North, which is the TV program for a regional news program for um, Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. And I did that for quite a few years to the point at which I then decided I didn't really think that my tenure behind the screen was going to be long lived uh, due to again, being female. And it's, it's interesting because the guy that I sat next to is actually still there 23 years later. And I knew I wouldn't be, I knew I'd be replaced um, at some point um, because it's always a younger woman and an older man on that sofa. And it's, you know, it's a bit better now, I think, if you look on the national news, but definitely in regional, it's, it's still very ageist in that sense. So I left and I went off and did a job that I shouldn't really have done, but it was one that want, I needed to get the BBC out of my system. And so I went off to Cyprus and became a press officer for the Ministry of Defence. Well, that's one way to get it out of your system, literally go somewhere else and do something completely different. Because I was just about to say, how can you get the BBC out of your system? It's omnipresent. <laughs> was that working out? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did about a year in Cyprus working for the MOD based um, at Akrotiri, the RAF base and the sovereign part of um, Cyprus. I had a rank. 
<laughs> and uh, you know it was the most bizarre you know because again you're talking to someone who's you know incredibly reactionary doesn't like a rule you know wants autonomy and then you you place me into a super disciplined very strict um oppressive for all the right reasons by the way you know the army and the raf need to be like that and i go oh i haven't really thought this through I remember going to the cinema, they had a cinema on the base and I went along with a friend of mine and before the film starts, um, there is a, a little montage of, of um, the national anthem um, and the queen, as it was at the time, you know, with pictures of her kind of, you know, launching ships with smashing bottles of champagne on the, you know, and you have to stand up to the national anthem. And I remember saying, oh, I'm not standing up, can't be bothered to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my friend said, you better just bloody stand up. Otherwise, you're going to be up in front of the sergeant major. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. And she said, stand up. Someone will tell, will tell if you don't stand up. <laughs> so I could have like, begrudgingly stood up. But yes, I, I didn't fit uh, in that environment. But I had a great time. And I got to do some amazing things. You know, I was on, got to go on frigates. Um, I flew to Afghanistan. I had... You know, hostile environments training. I learned a lot about what it's like to be in the military, and I saw I saw a lot of things. You know that not lots of people wouldn't see, but I didn't. It wasn't it wasn't going to be my lasting uh, calling. Or that. So uh, I uh, I came back with my tail between my legs, somewhat to the UK with nothing, no house, no car, no job, no partner. I thought, God, what am I going to do? So I bought myself this white Astra van and I bunked up with my friend in her flat and I set up as a freelance. And um, four or five years later, well, maybe not that long, maybe two or three years later, I had 10 people working for me, running a digital training company for print journalists. Uh, and I met my husband and we bought a house and, you know, I, I was doing really, really well. One of my clients um, was News International. And they said to me, you know, we, we're really interested in you joining and we'd like you to come and work at the News of the World and do our multimedia uh, strategy. Um, do you fancy coming to London? And so I did. I moved out of that training company, moved our life to London, and we've been here ever since. And I'm going back to that company in a few weeks' time, which feels strangely comfortable, um, like going home, but also I need to go back to my roots, uh, which is which is journalism and content and providing people with information and news and do all of that with all of those, you know, digital skills and commercial skills that I've gained over the years. I've left out a few bits in between. So post news, uh, where I was for seven years, I had a brief stint at uh, the Daily Mail Group. And I also worked at Santander for about 18 months in an innovation team before joining Salesforce back in 2018. I too come from a background where beliefs were, I grew up in the 80s, 90s. And as a girl, and 
the beliefs were money doesn't grow on a tree, get married as soon as possible, have a safe apprenticeship. So there wasn't even a question as to whether I should go to uni or not. No, no, have an apprenticeship, be safe, earn money every month. That's it. It restricts you right away. Yeah. Um, don't change. I remember still at the age of 15, standing in front of my mom in the garden, she putting up the laundry. And I said to her, mom, I want to go either to the US or to the UK. I want to do a bit of little pairing and speak English as much as possible and so on. And she bursted out in tears and played the guilt card, not in a manipulative way, but just like, you cannot do this. Oh my God, something will happen to you. And what are we going to do without you and all of this? So you get so many restrictions or learn almost to restrict yourself as a girl and if you don't break out of it yourself and you don't take action and that includes risks then how are you going to embrace a world that works for you how do you create that how do you know what's out there so that's that's why i'm loving the career path that you have just outlined that included risks as well and the thing is when you take risks Every time you take one, the next one becomes less risky. And so for me, there are no risks now, only opportunity. And I have never, ever been frightened to take them because you can always look back and go, well, I did that before, it was fine. And I did that one before and it was fine. And I did that one and that one was rubbish. And I just, okay, I then had to just admit that that was not a good choice. You know, again, not all of the risks have been positive for me, but you learn so much from every one that you take, even the ones that were, you know, crazy. If I could mm. bottle that and share that with young women and, and young men today, you know, I, I would. Because adversity, it, 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 it's, it drives exponential growth. It really does. I agree with you. And it often requires people like you to help us see opportunities isn't that sticky yes um i mean the last week or so i've just been exiting from my current role mm. and i've been genuinely overwhelmed by the amount of people who are not just you know my immediate colleagues or friends you know who i would expect to say yes i'm really, really you know i'm going to miss you i'm going to miss working with you because i see you every day but actually the kind of peripheral People, people that maybe I, you know, I haven't seen in a while, or I only spoke to a couple of times, who've said to me, you know, I'm really sad that you're leaving. You're one of the most inspirational people at Salesforce. You've had this impact on me. You know, I, I, I I'm fascinated by what you do. Um, I've watched your video, and I've just been like, had no idea, no idea at all. And I don't mean that in in some kind of you know, modest way genuinely walk around not really realizing the impact that I have on others which is why I think my decision to move on and do something else is an important one because it shows others you know that they can do the same thing because fear of leaving because you don't think you're going to find something else or you know the golden handshake, you know, is too good to stay, is powerful because it, you know, it plays into that deep centered fight or flight response that we have. So I hope I've inspired a few people to kind of, you know, 
not leave. I don't want people to leave if they're happy, but but to think about you know their careers or just take a moment, um, you know, and question. I've spoken to a bunch of leaders a few weeks ago. There was a huge discussion about I wouldn't hire anybody who has had too many changes in their CV. I could notice myself as a culture facilitator. I'm also a person, right? A human, literally getting quite caught up internally with what I've heard. I was like, oh, oh my God, how can you even say that? Right. And there was a huge discussion happening around it because there was a minority of people who said, I disagree. I wholeheartedly disagree. And it almost started up an argument about it. And it's so important that you gather experiences, not just for the sake of gathering experiences, obviously be intentional. And intentional could mean I need to figure out what I really want to do. Yeah. I mean, how do you know if you don't try? Exactly. The other thing is, you know, if you think about leaders, good leaders, they usually have a selection of tool sets, you know. So, you know, look, most CEOs are accountants, but they will have done other roles to hone, you know, the the, the areas that perhaps they need complementing in. Okay, they may have done the CFO role for a while, but they might have done a COO role for a little while or, you know, so I think For me, it was really important having been in a delivery or content creation role all my life to really understand the commercial drivers. Um, because, you know, if you're going to go back into, an, into a, a sector that is struggling with, with what that commercial business plan is or strategy is, you have to understand how that commercial element works. And so, you know, my, my choices have not been random. You know, I've, I've chosen roles because they're areas that I want to develop um, that I see as being important to my future career. Um, so actually, I'd always worked in decline. So the media has always been decline. Every single, and even banking, you know, when I was at Santander for a year, always decline, mostly delivery. So when I had the opportunity to go into a high growth commercial software selling environment, even though I was selling to the media, I jumped on it because... You know, A, the experience of being in growth, not decline, which and, and the two can be, you know, equally challenging and, and B, gaining a commercial perspective. And so now I have this kind of, you know, fantastic kind of set of tools, which I think now are probably optimal for the role that I'm going to go into. I want to come back to one point you mentioned. I've wrote down quite a few notes and a few points that I want to get back to. However, this one really stuck with me when you shared what people said to you over the last few weeks when having those farewell lunches and dinners and how inspirational you were and are to them. And he said, I have had no idea. And I thought, oh my God, how much more impactful could Helen be if she had an idea and used it intentionally? So I wonder how you can take all of what you have heard and your reflections with you into your new role to pass on those privileges, as we call them in facilitator language, tailwinds to others to accelerate their growth. Yeah, and I, I've thought about that a lot, actually. And there are some things that I know that I'm good at, you know, there are, you know, there are things that I, you know, will accentuate 
because I know that, you know, I, I, I can use that and it's a differentiator. You know, humor is a great thing for me. It's a, it's a good disarmer. It, you know, I can get people to follow me using that tool. My direct approach, um, the way in which I artic articulate myself has been remarked upon. But, you know, I think what I would say, and I have said this to a number of women that have come up to me over the last week or so is just ask more. You know, I, I'm always really bemused by the fact that people or women don't come and ask for my help more. And, and, you know, and a couple of women said, oh, you know, I just thought you'd be really busy or, you know, I just didn't think you'd have the time or I didn't know if you wanted to. And I said, well, I would love to mentor you. I don't know why people don't ask more. And that's the, I think that's the bit that I need to work on. How do I become more approachable, open to allow other people to come and ask me for more or for help? Yeah, that's what I'm reflecting on. I have a sense you are pretty approachable to people who you already know or who know you, gotten to know you. Yeah. And, and then it's also about, and it's not just for you, it's for all the women out there and leaders in general who can have a bigger impact. How can we speak up about supporting others, being mentors to others so that they hear it and it literally clicks <laughs> so that they say, yeah, hey, let me approach Helen. Yeah. Absolutely. Be, be present, visible and share. Yeah. What's, what's some of the feedback you have received, if I may ask, that you weren't aware of? How have you inspired others? I did a talk recently where I spoke about my own experience um, as, a, as a child growing up and the impact that having a, a disabled parent has had on me. And not just the negative impact, but actually the positive impact of a parent not being able to um, hear. So my mum my is deaf. She had, she's been deaf since I was two. And I always thought that that had a negative impact on me in terms of my, you know, my frustration and, you know, not being like everybody else. And, you know, but actually I've come to the conclusion that it's a, she's given me this amazing gift, which is that because I've had to uh, engage with my mother um, from such an early age in terms of having to look at her when I talk to her, I now have this learned behavior that's inbuilt in me, which means that I have to maintain eye contact um, with everyone that I speak to in order for them, for me to subconsciously believe that they're listening to me. So even now, even though my mum has a, a cochlear implant, I still have to, she still has to look at me so I know that she's heard me. Okay, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that, you know, I, it's, it's a learned behavior. And so, that directness and that ability to engage at a, at a very visceral level for me I, is, I think, a unique part of me as, as a communicator that no one else possibly has because they've not had that, that learned experience as a child. And that for me is a huge gift because it's made me super aware of how our senses, all of them, play a role in our face-to-face -face communication. And it's COVID and virtual working uh, has really worried, it worries me. Even AI and ChatGPT, these, these things worry me because, you know, they are negating the need for us to experience all of those senses. You know, that liminal space that happens when two people engage and there is an, there's an energy 
there's a spark, you know, there is a, a presence when you connect in that way that you don't when you've got like you know, a screen, a, a two-dimensional experience. And so I have a deep, deep respect um, for the senses and also deep awareness for people who have lost one and how they compensate um, for that. And, you know, my mum's other senses are so heightened because she can't hear. And so I wanted to do this talk and remind people about that. I'm not anti-virtual. I'm not anti any of these tools. I mean, I've just sold them for the last five years. So, you know, I think they're all amazing and they're wonderful in terms of, you know, how we manage our day and become, you know, um, more productive. But we mustn't, we mustn't lose sight of our humanity. And a lot of people remarked on that talk and came up to me and just said, you know, that was incredible the way that you shared that. And it took a lot for me to do that because you know it's you're very vulnerable when you're talking about your own experience especially you know as a child but I, I think i connected with people around that and that was um that was really enjoyable for me yeah it was nice i remember walking through town on a sunny day listening to your talk and to a certain extent watching but I'm also trying to be very present of people around me and cars bumping into me <laughs> while watching a talk. However, the point I'm actually trying to make is I remember walking into a little alleyway where it was quieter and I stopped and I leaned against the wall because I thought this talk requires so much more attention and it literally got to me. I had goosebumps. I teared up for a moment, in particular when you told a story about your mom, but also about uh, an experience with your son. And from one second to another, I was just like, in a positive sense, paralyzed and absolutely utterly focused. And that mainly by listening to your voice and the tonality and the pauses in between. And I thought after I finished listening to it, that's a great way of engaging people in your narrative. And I haven't been sitting opposite you. I haven't seen you on the stage. I listened and yet you were able to completely draw me into that conversation. And that's a real art. Voice is an incredible tool. As I said in my talk, the experience with my son you know, there wasn't a lot of talking at that time to give you some context for those who haven't watched the, 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 the speech. My son was really ill when he was two weeks old and we spent about eight, nine, maybe 10 weeks in intensive care and, and high dependency uh, in hospital um, with him on a, a ventilator. And so you don't do much talking, you know, you do a lot of listening. And the thing that struck me about my experience was the nurse that looked after my son and the perfume that she wore. And every morning I would walk into the, uh, into the high dependency, you know, intensive care room after spending a night in a bed and breakfast the night before, because there's nowhere for you to stay in the hospital and just being awake all night, waiting for the phone to ring in case he you know, hadn't made it through the night. And the smell of her every morning was just intoxicating. And I remember thinking, I will want to wear this smell, not as a morbid reminder, you know, of the trauma and pain, but of the care that she gave and the strength that she provided me 
through that time in my life. And I do, I still wear that, that perfume to this very day um, because it's this, you know, and there is something about smell. When you breathe in a smell, it goes straight to the memory of, of, of the experience that you have of that smell, which is why smells always bring very vivid memories back very quickly because of the nerve that goes between, there's a, you know, it's a, a physical um, connection that's quicker than your eyesight um, or touch. And so, you know, you often when we get memories from smells, they're very vivid. And I just think, you know, we forget these things and they are, they're so powerful, so powerful. And it's just a list, just a reminder from, of me, for me of kindness um, at a really traumatic time in my life. And some people will say to me, why do you want to remember that all the, you know, every day? And because it's, it's important. And you also, again, turned a really challenging situation into opportunities, perhaps to a wrong word, but you see the possible, you yeah. know, you came out of it um, with a happyish end. Hope, I think, is um, the most important thing we have in life. And, you know, I think any trauma and nobody wishes trauma on anyone, right, you know, and, and myself included, but any trauma in life. You know, you, you take so much from it. There is so much learning. And, you know, there is nothing worse than almost losing a child other than losing a child. Um, and I think, you know, now my view is even when I had a, you know, brief brush with cancer a few years ago, you know, I never stopped for a moment to think, well, you know, woe is me. That's the, that's the end because nothing is as bad as what happened before. Um, and so, you know, that, that is the kind of benchmark for me now, you know, nothing is as bad as that. And you get, you know, strength from that. Huge amount of resilience from designs of it. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, but you don't wish that on anyone. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. One, 100%. No. And I, I can't even imagine what the situation was like for you. Seriously, it was for me this moment when I stopped and I'm like, oh, want to use the F word here. Damn it. You know, that's that's really tough. That must be hard. You mentioned earlier on when, when speaking about that speech that communication is so key. Focus and presence is so key. And that you truly look into people's eyes when talking to them. Now, in storytelling, it's called strength, right? Women, people in general who look into your eyes and can hold that side, that's a real demonstration of strength. However, some people may feel intimidated by that and not even realizing that that is the thing that imitate. Uh, intim now I'm stuck. Intimidate. Intimidates them. <laughs> and for me, the question is, and I asked you that before, how are you being perceived by others? You're walking into a new role with all the strength you have got and that you've gathered over the last years and people meet you for the first time. How do they usually meet you and see you? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because I always come back to something called the Johari window. Do you know about the Johari? Yeah. And I think, so there's the things I know about me. There's the things that you know about me. There's the things that we both know about me and there's the things that neither of us know about me. 
And I think you have to go in with a learning mind. And so I try to park my judgment, um, which is very difficult because we all have our own biases. And I try hard to think about what's that person feeling? What's that person doing? What are they displaying? How are they reacting to me? And probably I do it a little bit too much, but I'm very conscious of the behaviors of other people that I'm talking to. And that it, feedback I get regularly, which is you took the time, you thought about me, you put yourself in my shoes, you understood, you had my back. The kinds of comments that you know I, I get. You read that situation well, you calmed things down, or you drove them forward, or you made a decision. How do you do that? I think some of it is innate mm. and non-conscious. Some of it is happening all the time. So that, you know, there is a second voice that's, you know, checking and balancing and checking and balancing which can be quite tiring. Hence why, you know, by the end of the day, I'm, you know, half past nine, I'm in bed with my book. I do need on my, I need to be alone sometimes. I really revel in that. Just, I just want to be on my own because it's intense. Also wonder in those situations, what our expectations are on others. So when you have, literally learned lifelong really to focus on others to show empathy to listen to understand and all the beautiful things you mentioned it becomes a part of us and as to whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally we may want to see it and experience it from others but not everybody is on that journey and I speak from my own experiences here And I realize, and that's my personal life in particular, that my expectations then get in the way. And, and that's where the danger lies when it comes to relationships in particular and leadership as well. That still there's a moment to, to stop and to pause and to see, okay, how can we help other people sharpen their listening skills, for example, instead of making a judgment call here? However, we all have our own ways to become aware and to help others become aware too. So long story short, how do you do and how do you manage your expectations? Yeah, that's a difficult one because I've got I've got a big J on the on on the kind of judging if you you know if you do the Myers Briggs. And I'm very because of being a carer as a child, I have a deep justice value as well. Okay. So, you know, if I feel there is an injustice happening or something isn't fair, and obviously, you know fair is, is, is subjective, right? It's, it's what I perceive to be fair. Then that, that, that kind of, you know, it's like someone doing this, constantly pushing you or pinching you, you know? Yeah. So I find that, that friction difficult, but I'm, I'm conscious of it. I'm aware of it. I know not everybody is as, you know, cares as much, you know, or has a different approach. And so I have gotten better, better, at managing that, even to the point where I've now can step into that shadow self, which I've spent quite a bit of work on over the last year doing. And by that, where a situation would perhaps have 
put me off. So for example, I tend to not like it when I can tell someone's brown nosing someone <laughs> you know so you know where where there's some sycophancy happening or that you know there's some um there's some some real kind of buttering up or you know that 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 kind of behavior which you know is super prevalent you know in 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 the in, you know today's politically heightened office environments mm. until someone said to me well why don't you ever go <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not, you know. Uh, and they said, but if you step into that space, see what happens. And so I've been sort of trying that a little bit and managing that kind of shadow self and, and trying to challenge my own values and uh, for, for the benefit of myself, because I think I'm cutting myself off perhaps from some opportunities or some relationships by having that have you know having that view does that make sense it makes a lot of sense it strongly resonates with me as well and i think it is a huge gift that you are bringing this heightened sense and it can be a barrier at the same time if we don't manage the shadow self as you highlighted and if we don't become aware that others are not on the same path and have different gifts that can complement ours, really. And, and that's the key, because we are different. Yeah. I still love, though, that you have to rebel yourself in you. No, 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 I'm not going to do the brown nosing here. No. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, it, it, I am a bit awkward. And I think, you know, that is also another thing that you have to kind of come to terms with. Awkwardness is not a bad thing. I used to think that being awkward, you know, what uh, was, you know, not a good thing, you know, not conforming or wearing the right clothes or, you know, wearing high heels and dresses and, you know, I'm, mm. which I love, but I don't want to wear them all. You know, that kind of corporate look. Yeah. And I now just sort of have embraced, you know, my, you know, my hair's not corporate and, my, you know, I don't tend to dress all that corporate. And I, I, I feel I'm more authentic now without trying to put a different lens on things and be somebody else do you know what i often ask myself what is corporate anymore yes if we think about the traditional corporate way and we have perhaps all maybe not all been there it's you usually have longer hair as a woman and you have a nice suit on or whatever it is Oh man, <laughs> you know, loads of shades of gray and so on and so forth. And something I watch very, very closely in particular as I work with so many different organizations and in the corporate world is that things change dramatically and I'm loving this. And I'm someone as well as a trainer, I walk into an organization, and I'm far more often me. I'm not necessarily wearing the suit or anything like that. Um, I will have a bold slogan on a T-shirt usually. Today it's belief. Uh, sometimes it's far bolder than that. And I realize when I can be so authentic, I show up at my best. And if you give other people that opportunity as well, where they can feel truly themselves, they will give their best. Yeah. You know, and, and I love to see some positive change there, slowly but surely. Me too. And I think you're right. I think there is, you know, it, it, it has changed massively. Some of those old attitudes pervade 
uh, and they're, they're just hidden now. And I think there's still an expectation that women should still have some modesty in the workplace. And I think that that is subtle, but pervasive uh, and annoys the shit out of me. Help me understand modesty a little bit more. Uh, what's acceptable in terms of a topic of, of conversation? So, you know, um, innuendo or types of language, dress to a certain extent, being too over the top, too physical, too outspoken. And I, these are these all sound a little bit pejorative because you know they can be taken in all different types of contexts, which is why I say it's subtle. But I think there's still that you know act in a feminine way. And there's actual research out there. So if we wanted to look at data here as well, since I think 2010, exactly that those differences in what we expect from women versus men. And now we could bring in the whole LGBTQ plus content as well, um, has been researched up until today or still today, women are still measured in their performance review far more on their communication, their soft skills. You are too direct, you are too abrasive and so on and so forth. While men are measured more on tangible performance uh, results, for example, we are still expected to be modest, to be empathetic, whereby it's great if a man is very ambitious and direct, decisive. These are real male words versus um, female words, and therefore we put ourselves into categories. We stereotype even more. And I think it's it's time to become aware of this and to mix strength and warmth that both bring and to complement each other, uh, men and women. But it requires us to be far more aware. Absolutely. It's still, still the case, right? Especially as you say, you called yourself a little bit awkward. I wouldn't call you that. But you have short hair. You have a strong presence. You look into my eyes. There is an immediate connection that can come across. Here's the word again, intimidating. And I think sometimes... People mix it up with, you are too strong, you're too direct, and so on and so forth. And it's important that we stop ourselves and really start to question where our judgment is coming from. So and, I'm glad that you mentioned it. Yeah. And do you know what? I want to mention something else around that, because it's not just women. It, I, I, I think men have a lot of feminine traits. And I, um, I, I, I also think it's a shame that they're not that they can't exploit those in the way that I can exploit my masculine traits because I think that that would really help the workplace be more equitable if men felt comfortable in using those feminine traits of which they all have them you know we you know we all have seen men be vulnerable maybe our own husbands or sons or fathers and yet the workplace doesn't allow that to be exploited in perhaps the way that it could be. And I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm talking generally, there may be examples of this happening, you know, so please don't think that this is everywhere, but what a lost opportunity. Yeah, I agree. 
And yet I can imagine as a leader, you make use of those opportunities. Especially now, in, as you are moving into new, your new role, uh, I assume you have a mixed team of genders, for example, age groups, skills. Do you know that already? Yes, mixed. How do you make sure you build a truly equitable workplace there? Uh, good question. And, and, you know, I think one of the things I've been successful in doing is kind of crossing that, um, that divide trying to really understand again you know how a millennial might view the world as opposed to someone who's a gen x like me and it's it's hard to kind of you know play the friendly and the leader you know and and you know you're constantly sort of straddling that you know divide between wanting to be accepted as part of the team and, and be part of the team, but also take one, you know, have one step removed because you are that person's line manager at the end of the day. And so there needs to be that kind of mutual respect of, of that, of the, of that, you know, delineation. And recently I, I had to, uh, you know, there was somebody that was exiting the business and um, I felt very strongly and I always do feel very strongly that, in, in any difficult conversation, the most important thing is that that person, you know, feels that they are being communicated in a kind way. You know, it, it, it might be the worst thing that's happening to them. They might be losing their job, but actually to do that in a kind way really makes all the difference. And the person that, that, that was going through this that I had, to, had to, to work through it with said to me at the end of it, this has been the most pleasant exit I've ever had from, from any organization. And I, and I said, well, it doesn't have to be any other way. And that just takes a lot of strength to be able to, you know, hit that head on and have that difficult conversation and work through it with that person. And I think a lot of people tend to just hide from it because it's difficult. Um, and I, so I think, back to your question, you have to just, you have to, you have to kind of change, you have to put different kind of lenses on when you're speaking to, you know, different members of the team and really, you know, you spend all that, spend a lot of time thinking, right, okay, well, what's the way that they will accept or listen to this information might be very different from somebody else. Yeah, one size does not fit all. No. And yet you make it sound so easy because you focus again on the foundations of being human, right? A, having a real interest in them, asking curious questions with a ton of empathy and understanding, and then communicating whatever needs to be communicated by really being there as another human being. And, and that that's, mean, that's it. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you don't, have to do difficult things mm. you know um and i have you know I, i'm not i'm not i'm not one i'm not you know i don't worry about having to make difficult decisions um, because i know you can make those difficult decisions in the right way and usually when somebody has a a reaction that is aggressive or is um emotional it's it's because it's it's you know it's hurting them but again it's it's it is tiring 
it, yes, yes, it is. And yet you find a way, and I'm sure it's not always perfect, to make sure you recharge. And what you've also demonstrated is you prioritize having those interactions and conversations because you could say, it's too tiring for me. No, I can't be bothered. But you can. Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on-demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. I think as well, you know, I, I'm much better at disassociating sometimes as well. So putting some boundaries around stuff because I know that spiraling stress or, you know, I, I, I used to catastrophize about a lot. And now I'm like, oh, you know, and, and have you read the, the chimp paradox? You know, mm -hmm. one of the one long of, time ago, but yes. Yeah. So one of the best books that I've ever read, and, and actually there's a kid's version now. Um, mm. you know, I bought it for my son and I was suddenly realizing, okay, name your chimp. And when that chimp comes out, yeah. you know, mine's called Doris. My son's is Fred, you know, and, and actually if you just got a oh, Doris, I just get back in your box you know stop catastrophizing it's not helpful it's not useful it's not doing me any good today i'm going to throw in a slight curveball and that i think was highlighted in chim paradox as well and a few other books they are still there to help you yes absolutely put them back slowly but surely into their box um but even their intent isn't supposed to be negative. They will often want to protect us. Um, want to have a quick check-in, <laughs> you know, before you move on stage to give your big G, uh, speech. You know, I want to make sure that's going to be okay. If we get too distracted by them, that's where the challenge lies, right? 100%. I mean, you know, if you're not, if you're not worried and anxious before you're going to go and, you know, do a big presentation or then you're probably a sociopath or narcissist. Um, so yeah, you know, those, those are natural uh, emotions, but when they get out of control, you know, when you're obsessing or you're making up stuff, that's when you have to go, okay, Doris, enough. <laughs> Stop it. Where does Doris come from? I don't know why she's called Doris. I think Doris, because she's a lot like my nan. And my nan isn't called Doris. My nan's called Elsie, but I couldn't. The association was too was too close to call my to call my alter ego my you know, my actual nan. But my nan is very much like that. She's you know never sees the positive. It's always negative. It's like oh why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do this? Don't do that. Don't do that. And that's rooted in you know where she you know she's she's ninety four. Um, so you know uh, the world was a different place. Women stayed at home, they looked after kids, they didn't do the, all these things, they didn't travel, you know. And so, you know, I, I kind of have to use her as my benchmark and go, okay, don't want to be like your nan. But she also, my nan, worked all her life, 
earned their own money, is incredibly strong, is still alive, uh, and there's nothing wrong with her, um, apart from being 94, and has incredible drive. And I think if she wasn't, if she hadn't been born, you know, in the in the in, in the 1920s, then she would have she would have been really quite phenomenal and formidable. So that's why she's that's why I call my chimp Doris. <laughs> I love the name. <laughs> I couldn't come up with one of these. <laughs> I do have one more question about your career path that really stuck with me. Because a while ago, you mentioned, at least half an hour ago, you mentioned how you decided to leave the BBC. Yes. And you basically said there usually was a younger woman and an older man on the couch. And it was time for me to go because I knew, you know, I would have been replaced at some point. Now, here I throw out an assumption to say maybe not everybody in this moment realizes that and says, I'm going to do something about it. Or perhaps we realize it, but, but then we push it to the side. Now, it's not going to come true. It will be different for me. You took action in this moment. You said, hey, BBC, I mean, that's a brand. That's a big name. I'm going to go. I I'm curious, what helped you take this step? That sounds to me from the outside quite bold. What helped me? It's a really good question. I, I, I think I've got a very good sense of when enough is enough. I know you, you know, you never stop learning, but when you've reached, okay, I think I've done enough here. If I stay, I'm either A, going to become garrulous and mischievous and because what, that's what happens when I get bored. So I become, you know, non-productive, you know, I become the, the person that messes about, you know, the one at school that would be like throwing paper airplanes at people, you know, or, you know, just, you know, just being, a, being naughty. I think there was that feeling that, okay, I, I can't do any more. I've mastered, you know, I'm a, I'm a presenter. I've been the TV journalist. I've, I've worked in radio. This is, this is where I'm at. And actually, if I stay any longer, I'm only going to diminish. And so I think that's been a conscious decision of at, eight, at each time I've left and gone on to do something new, is that thirst for that horrible feeling, and this sounds completely masochistic, but that horrible feeling of day one in a new job where you don't know Jack. And you suddenly go, I'm at the bottom of the hill again. And this is an exciting prospect because I need to climb back up. Mm. And I really, I love that scary, exciting, mad feeling of not knowing anything again. I'm not great at staying at Plateau. Thank you for sharing that. There's a big why behind my question, and that is to encourage others who listen to this show to make a choice because you have a power to choose. And sometimes we stick to something that doesn't give us any more that level of curiosity, the learning, the growth, whatever feels important to us. And we feel those golden handcuffs far too much and then stay. We will find great justifications while it is good to stay. 
but is it the truth? Right? Does it feel true to you? Thank you for being so open. Last but not least, Helen, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, my goodness. My legacy. Oh. Yeah, the big one at the end. Here we go. <laughs> what my legacy to be? She made me laugh. That's a good one. That's, yeah, it's a gift. Helen, it's been such an incredible pleasure talking to you. It's like talking to a friend over a coffee, which we both have here, probably cold by now. But thank you. It's been amazing. And I wish you a ton of success for your new endeavor. I have no doubt we will hear and read about you and all the success stories that you created together with your teams. However, if people want to get in touch with you and they say, oh, I want Helen to be my mentor, for example, how can they do that? Oh, you can find me. Um, you know, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm there. Just send me a DM or connect with me um, and I'd be more than happy to have a chat. And obviously, we are going to be publishing those contact details as well. So please don't hesitate. Helen said it very, very openly. Just ask me if you want help or anything from me. Let me know. So here you go. That's a very clear invitation. Helen, have a wonderful week, um, a great holiday and a brilliant start into your new role. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Perhaps you have some ideas for additional topics, something that you're truly curious about. Please do leave your review on Apple Podcasts as well. It would mean the world to us. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Take good care. Bye.